You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. In this episode, we're going to introduce you to a place that I think fairly could fairly be referred to as the proverbial cradle of life of waterfowl research and waterfowl management in North America. That place is Delta Marsh at the southern end of Lake Manitoba. Delta Marsh has a long history in the field of waterfowl research here in North America, dating back to the 1930s. And a lot of the research that's been conducted in these at Delta Marsh over the years has helped shape much of what we understand about the breeding ecology of prairie nesting waterfowl, as well as the ecology of prairie wetlands. Delta Marsh was also well known for its importance as a migratory staging area, particularly in the fall, where every year it would host huge concentrations of canvasbacks. That's one of the most well-known species that use uh, the Delta Marsh. As you might expect, those huge concentrations of canvasbacks attracted a lot of hunters. And those hunters came from all walks of life, including members of royalty, celebrities, and then just other locals from the area. Now, through the years, unfortunately, habitat conditions, habitat quality in Delta Marsh began to change. And as we might expect, and as we've seen in so many other places, as habitats decline, so do waterfowl abundances. So, through the years, the Delta Marsh kind of lost its glory as one of those really important waterfowl staging areas. The concentrations of canvasbacks declined. Uh, the hunting wasn't as good. And so that begged the question of what's causing the problem? Well, the story that we're going to bring you today tells us what the problem was. It also shares with you a little bit of the history of Delta Marsh, some of which I've already introduced to you. But it's also importantly and most excitingly, it's going to be a story about the recovery of Delta Marsh, how we learned what the problem was, what was causing the, de the decline of habitat conditions, and then how we can implement targeted measures, science-based measures to overcome those impacts and reverse those declining habitat trends in the marsh and then see how waterfowl respond. As I said, it's a very exciting story. It's a story that has particular meaning to me because I spent some time at Delta Marsh during my undergraduate days and my graduate days as well. Uh, and I know it's a story and it's a place that has particular meaning to many of the other listeners of the podcast. Now, I'm very delighted to welcome in our guest on today's show. He's a friend of mine. He is an outstanding educator, a renowned researcher, and a person that knows more about Delta Marsh, its decline and recovery than perhaps anyone. Our guest today is Dr. Dale Rebleski, research scientist with DU Canada's Institute for Wetland and Waterfowl Research in Oak Hammock Marsh, Manitoba. Dale, welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, and thanks for sharing your time. Well, Mike, thanks for having me. How was that for an introduction? Uh, pretty glowing and uh, <laughs> a very nice introduction to a place I think that is very special to me and for very, a lot of other people out there as well. It, it really is, and I know I know people are going to enjoy hearing about this. Those that have been there, those that are aware of it, I think are going to appreciate this. 
uh, a, a bit more than perhaps the average listener. And so maybe also it will inspire the average listener to do a bit more digging into the significance of this of this place and what it has meant to waterfowl research and waterfowl management across North America. It really is a special place. Uh, and and I'm, I'm fortunate to have been able to spend a bit of time there. That's actually one of the first places where you and I you and I met. Yes, that was a while ago. <laughs> it was. It was. I want to move right now into an introduction for you. I want to give you a chance to introduce yourself to the listeners. You, uh, there's a, a br- actually a couple of brand new developments in your life, as as I've I learned about one of those just a few minutes ago. But yeah, just share with our listeners uh, some details about who you are, your career, and what it is you're up to now. Oh, well, as you mentioned, I'm a research scientist with the Institute for Wetland and Waterfall Research of Ducks Unlimited Canada. I'm a wetland ecologist, actually trained as an entomologist. And I like to say I'm trained as an entomologist that works for a duck organization on fish, mostly right now. So quite a broad range of skills I've developed over the many, many years. Native of Saskatchewan, lived in Manitoba for many years, was actually first introduced to Delta Marsh as a summer student in 1979, as one of the Webster students. And it is a place of um, that means a lot to me uh, as a summer student, a graduate student doing both my degrees there, spending a lot of time there over the years, uh, working with lots of students. As you said, I was associated with the Delta Waterfall Research Station, which was the and has been the paramount place for uh, waterfall research, wetland ecology, uh, for many, many years. And it was uh, fortunate for me to be part of that. Uh, I've been with Ducks Unlimited for 25 years, retired last week, and also became a grandparent for the first time last week as well. So lots of changes for me. Yeah. So a, a double congratulations there to you for the retirement and for becoming a, a grandfather. So that's those are two pretty cool developments. And to have them sort of in sync, I'm sure that's that's extra special. Yes, it is. So now I know what I'll be doing for the for a large part of my retirement. I have a new new fishing buddy that I have to start training. Dale, I gave a bit of an introduction there to Delta Marsh, the history of that location. But I want to give you an opportunity because of your experience there uh, to expand on that story in any way that you want to with respect to you know its importance for waterfowl, waterfowl hunting, waterfowl management. Now we're going to get into the, we're going to get into describing it as an ecosystem and then we're going to describe the habitat declines uh, kind of momentarily. But any, I mean, we could have a conversation, an entire conversation about the history of that, of that location. But just in a couple of, I mean, are there any highlights that you always leave people with whenever you're talking about Delta Marsh and its, its history or significance? Well, as you've already alluded to, it's well known for its abundance of staging waterfowl in the fall. Um, over 100 years ago, um, the birds were so thick there that many of the locals made their uh, living uh, market hunting the waterfowl. Uh, for the table trade. And that's what attracted those stories of those, you know, the, the migrations that came through Delta that really attracted the rich and the famous uh, lodge builders uh, coming to the marsh to hunt the waterfowl, you know, two future Kings that you mentioned uh, royalty, uh, you know, movie stars like Clark Gable came. Jimmy Robinson was very instrumental in raising the, the um, the stature of Delta. He was a writer for Sports Field magazine. And in fact, the, his lodge, the Sports Field Lodge, is still operational on the marsh. He wrote lots of stories about his times at Delta, the hunting expeditions, and his friends and 
you know, that he brought out there and the stories they tell about the, about the marsh. So that helped raise the profile as well as there's lots of, uh, um, artists, writers, lots of paintings you'll see out there of, uh, waterfowl scenes, uh, Delta Marsh, the writers, you mentioned Albert Hochbaum. He was the first director of the Delta Waterfall Research Station, which was very instrumental in raising the profile of the marsh because of the students, the professors that came there, the research they did and the information that they gain on the understanding of the marsh. But there's also a second field station in the marsh, which people aren't aware of. The University of Manitoba had a station there as well. And it also supported a lot of uh, student uh, research on the marsh. Unfortunately, both of them were heavily damaged in the flood that we had in 2011. The university station's no longer there. It was closed. The waterfall station's still there. It was, it was damaged as well, but it actually uh, still operational and it served the base for much of the research that uh, we're going to talk about uh, later in the interview. Outstanding. I mean, I, that, You've whet my appetite for a, a broader discussion about the history of, of Delta. It's again, having been there for a number of years and, and having the opportunity occasionally to go back in the fall and to hunt the marshes. Uh, yeah, it's it, these conver- this conversation is going to be particularly exciting for me. It's going to be a bit nostalgic. And so anyway, I'm sure I'll have to resist the temptation to ask you some of these side questions because I don't, don't want to get off on too much, too much of a detour. But there is tons of material that we can talk about from a historical standpoint there at Delta. And so uh, let's let's kind of skip forward here. And I want to I want to have you describe Delta Marsh, its location, what it is, Delta Marsh as an ecosystem. Um, so let's just start off with where it is, what what is it, how big is it, and how is it formed, those types of things? Well, Delta is situated in south-central Manitoba. Uh, it's on the, It stretches out about 30 kilometers or 20 miles along the south end of Lake Manitoba. Um, there's a beach ridge, a uh, forested beach ridge that actually separates the marsh from the lake. But uh, transecting that beach ridge are actually four channels. Uh, Clandeboy Channel, Delta Channel, and then there's Cramondy Creek. So while the marsh is separated from the lake, water moves back and forth uh, through those channels. And that's very important to the character of the marsh. I should mention the marsh is very large, about 18,500 hectares, which I think is about 45,000 acres. So it's a fairly extensive wetland stretched out around along the south end of the lake. And it consists of these what we call bays, these large, shallow lakes that are linked together. Um, Cadham Bay, you know, people may have heard of Cadham, Simpson, Waterhen, Clandeboy Bays. Uh, fairly large, uh, um, shallow lakes, several miles across, but very shallow, only, you know, three feet deep on average, probably. All linked together and all connected to the lake. So this is a, interesting, this is a wind-driven system that we're talking about here. So the uh, the flow in those channels goes back and forth with the winds. So north winds blow water into the marsh. So come down the lake, push water through the channels and into the marsh. And then south winds blow the water back out uh, of the marsh, back out to the lake. So water levels fluctuate continually in the marsh just based on wind direction and the speed of the winds. 
So marsh and lake are very much interconnected. Water moves back and forth. But an important aspect of that is the fish community that moves back and forth between the, the marsh and the lake as well. And that's a lot of what we want to deal with in our discussion uh, during the interview is the fish community, because that's very important. So while we're talking about the marsh's important waterfall habitat, uh, and when we're trying to do a restoration project here, actually, it's the fish community that we have to really consider uh, in the work that we want to do there. Yeah, that's a fascinating intersection between uh, waterfowl and another group of wildlife that depend on the same, or I guess fish in this case, that depend on upon the same resource. And that's why some of the science behind this is really cool because it's not just waterfowl, it's it's fisheries and vegetation and wetlands as well. I would just say we have to think of the marsh as a larger system. And it's connected to a larger lake. And we have to think about all uh, how the dynamic between the marsh and the lake and all the plants and animals that live there and how they're interconnected. Absolutely. And I want to I wanna also give people an appreciation for the size of Lake Manitoba. It's a freshwater lake. But I just had to look this up here online. I mean, it's a massive freshwater lake, 1,700 square miles, almost 1,800 square miles in size. And this is another one of those times where I will encourage people as you're sitting around in the evening, if you're listening to this in the evening, you can do this as you're listening to it, go on Google Earth or or Google Maps or what, whatever image program you want and look at Lake Manitoba and at the, go find it, look at it, and you'll see Delta Marsh here at the, at the southern end of that lake. And so, again, just to kind of give you a bird's eye perspective of where this is continentally. And what that that landscape looks like, I always find that that helped. And we have the resources now where anybody can do that. We can get a better appreciation for what's out there. Now, Adele, I want to talk a bit about the inflows and outflows to the lake historically. And this is a bit of education for my own part. Uh, what are the are there any major rivers that historically came that flowed into the lake? And then I also want you to talk about the outflows to the lake. Well, there used to be a river, a major river that flowed into uh, Delta Marsh. In fact, if people do look at a Google Earth image of it, you'll see these windy channels and you'll see channels throughout the marsh. That was the Assiniboine River, uh, which flowed into the marsh up until about 2000 years ago. In fact, the Assiniboine River, which around the city of Portage La Prairie, which is about 24 kilometers about 16 miles south of the marsh, the Cinnaboyne River is there, flows through uh, Portage La Prairie and continues east to the city of Winnipeg. But about 4,000 years ago to about 2,000 years ago, it actually flowed north into the south end of Lake Manitoba. And that's why you see these old river channels in there. So you think there might be a river that flows into the marsh today, but in fact, there isn't. But there was 2,000 years ago. And in fact, when that river did flow into there, it created a delta out into the lake. And when that uh, river stopped flowing 2,000 years ago, that delta was eroded. And that's what created the beach ridge separating the south end of the lake, which then became Delta Marsh from Lake Manitoba. So, and another side point is that you'd think, okay, well, that's where the name Delta comes from because there was historically a Delta there and that was eroded and that separated the marsh from the lake and that became the beach ridge. But actually that has nothing to do with the name for Delta Marsh at all. Uh, the name Delta Marsh actually comes from a railway station. Uh, back a hundred years ago, they used to mine gypsum at the north end of Lake Manitoba 
And they'd bring the gypsum down in steamboats. And there was a railway line built from Portage La Prairie north to the south end of the lake to offload the gypsum from the steamboats onto the railway line. And the railway line had four stations between Portage. And they were named Alpha, Beta, Gamma. And the last one at the marsh was Delta. So Delta Station is how Delta Marsh got its name. I did not know that. I, yeah, that's I think cool. it's associated with the the older, you know, the the historic river delta out into the lake, and that's created the marsh. Actually, we didn't know that till much later uh, after Delta had already had its name. Huh? Uh, if I knew that, I had certainly forgot it. There is a book, a fantastic book, a Delta Marsh and its people, or something uh, of that nature. That may be the name of it. Uh, is that right? Yeah, Gordon Goldsboro and uh, Glenn Suggett and the Delta Marsh History Initiative uh, put that out a couple of years ago. And yeah, it's a fascinating book. Lots of photographs, really interesting history to this whole area. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. All right, so I want to talk also about the out. This is, I think, will be interesting. There's a couple of other things relative to inflows that we need to talk about. Yes. Um, and then, but then also the outflow uh, the outflow to Lake Manitoba, and this, I always find this interesting because living in the southern U.S. basically all my life, uh, or the majority of my life, everything, all the waters flow south into the Gulf. But the waters, <laughs> waters up in, uh, in, out of Lake Manitoba flow to the north, right? What, talk about the outlet for Lake Manitoba. Yeah, the Fairford River is the outlet, and it flows, actually flows, the Fairford actually flows more east, northeast, and, and drains into Lake Winnipeg. But Lake Winnipeg, all of that water drains north into Hudson Bay. And the important part of that related to this whole story is that the Fairford River, uh, the province back in the early 1960s built a structure there to manage water levels on the lake. Many people think the lake is actually managed for hydroelectric because in the province of Manitoba, all our power is hydroelectric and we have lots of dams in the north that are used for generating hydroelectric power. But in this case, Lake Manitoba is not. It's actually managed, uh, it's stabilized, unfortunately, for the, well, Depends how you look at it, I guess I should say before I qualify that. It's it's stabilized for the benefit of the landowners and for or the cottage owners and everybody who lives around the lake. Because historically, the lake went through very dry periods and very wet periods. And to try and minimize that disruption, because Lake Manitoba is a very large, while it's a large lake, it's actually, I think if you look, it's the 13th largest lake in the world. It's a very large system. It's very shallow basin and the land around it's all very flat. So any increases in water levels, even of a couple of feet, means the water spreads horizontally quite a long ways and disrupts the cottage developments, the agriculture, everything around the lake. So in the early 60s, the province built the Fairford control structure to try and stabilize the lake. So if what lake levels are coming up, they'd open it up. Lake levels are starting to drop. They'd close off the structure to try and stabilize uh, the system. But I think, you know, many folks would probably recognize that um, while people like stability, nature doesn't like stability. It's that fluctuations that are very important to disrupting the system and maintaining a nice balance in the system. We need that um 
stochasticity, the uh, irregular water levels to really benefit a lake. And unfortunately, um, while it has uh, benefited people over the long term, it's been very disruptive to the lake. But also, remember I talked about Delta being connected. It's been very disruptive to Delta Marsh and the other coastal wetlands as well. A side note here for people, if you ever travel to Canada and if you ever hear anyone talking about hydro or hydro bill or anything of that, and they're talking about the power bill or the electricity <laughs> bill. Uh, I've, I've, the first time I heard that, I was like, what, what, hydro? I mean, that's, that's water. Why aren't we talking about that with respect to electricity? <laughs> and, but that's why. It's because that's where all your power comes from. So a little side piece of information there. Dale, let's move on now to a discussion of, I, I guess, decadal changes in the quality of the waterfowl habitat there in Delta Marsh with the background of, of what it is, where it is, and how some of the water levels affect it. I'm, I'm going to allow you to just talk about some of these decadal changes, the type of, of food resources that are that are that are known to be highly highly valued, highly abundant there at Delta Marsh, or at least they were historically, and how those changed through time. So take us away. Well, we talked about the abundance of waterfowl at Delta historically, but in the late 50s through the early 1960s, there was concern uh, from stakeholders, primarily the hunting community, that the ducks just weren't starting to show up like they did historically. And there was a lot of concern about that. And there was some initial research started to, and actually some preliminary management was actually even start, uh, started to try and figure out what the issues were. Um, they, the, the hunting community doc, you know, talked about the water's not as clear as it used to be. It's more turbid. There's less submersed vegetation in the marsh. Um, the character of the marsh overall, the water quality was declining and the ducks just weren't there. And so there was a lot of concern uh, through the 60s uh, that something was going on. And I don't know, do you want me to start talking about carp? Because that's where the carp story actually comes, gets started. We could start talking about carp if you'd want. Well, yes, I want you to do that. But first talk about the, 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 oh, the decadal changes. Yeah. Well, yes. the, okay. the, the vegetation community, what's um, the submerged aquatics and the, the key species there that are yes. that were were of importance and of concern. Okay, so so I said uh, starting in the '60s they started to be concerned. So the, through the '60s, '70s, and '80s the duck numbers were declining but weren't too bad. Um, and I mentioned those submerged plants that were disappearing. Well, those submerged plants are very important for a whole range of things. And when you talk about submerged plants, people sometimes aren't sure what we're talking about. So we're talking about sago pondweed, water milf oil, coontail, um, uh, trying to think of some of the others that we have at Delta, different pondweeds and such. Uh, those plants are very important for a number of things. Um, one, they hold the sediments in place. So wind and wave action don't reach down into sediments and stir up the sediments. So they tend to protect the sediments. They, so they help clear, keep the water clear. They also compete uh, for nutrients with algae. So they take up the nutrients and that prevents uh, the phytoplankton, the algae in the water column from growing. It also provides very important habitat for a lot of the aquatic invertebrates uh, in the water columns. Because if there was no structure in the water column, a lot of these invertebrates wouldn't be present there. So these plants provide habitat and structure in the water column for things like amphipods that Scott feed on, for example. 
And then the plants themselves produce seeds. Uh, you know, sago pondweed, for example, produces tubers, which are very important for canvasbacks, for example. And then a lot of the dabbling ducks feed on the seed heads of pondweed and other things. So these plants are very important to the habitat in terms of stability, uh, keeping the water clear, but also in terms of providing uh, important food resources or supporting important food resources for the waterfowl as well. So those essentially started to disappear. Uh, particularly, again, we have to come back to the bigger picture. We'll talk more about carp, I guess, in a few minutes. But particularly starting in the uh, early 80s and through the 90s and the 2000s, the submersed vegetation uh, really bottomed out in the marsh. And that's, we think, was an important driver of the declining waterfall populations there as well. I remember when I was at Delta in the mid-90s, I think that might have been around the time where you were uh, you were initiating some new research to investigate kind of what was what was going on. I remember it. I kind of thought it was odd. This naive kid from Mississippi. I thought this is odd for a guy to be studying fish up here at a, <laughs> at a, at a waterfowl station. What's going on here? Maybe he, he must just be bored. He's studying carp. You know, what's up with that? So, uh, but actually, it's it, it's a key explanation for some of the declines in the submerged aquatics and, uh, and presumably there the waterfowl uh, as well. So that was a, a very interesting introduction for me to this entire sort of ecosystem level examination of what was what was happening. So yeah, just talk about that, Dale. How did people begin to realize what was happening and uh, how early did, did people begin to suspect that carp were playing a role and then then let's just talk about how carp are, uh, how they influence that system. Well, at Delta, um, people started getting concerned about carp uh, in the early 60s. And they talk about the extremely high numbers piling into the marsh. Carp are uh, warm water species. They, they do winter in deeper, cooler habitats in the wintertime, but they breed uh, in and spawn in very shallow, warm vegetation-rich habitats. That's where they prefer to spawn and they lay their eggs on the flooded vegetation. And then they like to feed on the high invertebrate densities that you find in wetland habitats. So in the case of Delta Marsh, because it's connected to Lake Manitoba, the and this goes for the other 30 species of fish that use the system as well, the fish winter in Lake Manitoba and then in the springtime, they migrate through those channels into the marsh where they you know spawn, they feed, the young are reared, and then in the fall, those fish migrate back out to Lake Manitoba again. So each spring in the early 60s, folks were noticing these extremely high densities of carp piling into the marsh. And if you've ever seen carp uh, during spawning or during feeding uh, in a shallow habitat, they're very disruptive. They're, they're like big vacuum cleaners. These are large bottom-dwelling fish, and they have a mouth that's more like a suction cup and they just travel along the bottom, burrowing their, pushing their heads into the bottom sediments, um, disrupting it, uh, stirring things up, filtering out the invertebrates and other plant material that they're trying to eat. So when you've got high densities of very large, like these fish are 30, 40 pounds, 
you know, and they can get much bigger than that, particularly for you folks down in the South, they get much bigger, but up here, you know, 20, 30 pounds is on average. And you get these large fish in high densities, bulldozing essentially through a wetland. They can be very disruptive. So that submersed vegetation I was talking about and the benefits it can provide, well, these carp, you know, uproot the submersed vegetation and then thereby we lose the stability they provide, the habitat they provide. The carp are directly stirring up the sediments. So they're stirring the mud up into the water column as well. And they're just very disruptive to these habitats. And people at Delta started to get concerned about these high densities of uh, fish at Delta. And so they started actually probably one of the, um, it might be the first carp exclusion project in Canada. I know this was going on in other places in the States earlier because uh, carp were introduced over a hundred years ago. But and it was ostensibly brought over as a food fish, and everybody thought this was going to be great news. But once they got here, after a couple decades, everybody realized this was a bad idea. We should never have brought them here. And there were efforts in the states earlier uh, at trying to figure out how to deal with carp, but in Canada, uh, not so fast. Uh, but I think at Delta in 1964, they built the first fish screens to try and keep the carp out of the marsh. So as I mentioned, they're wintering in Lake Manitoba. So they put chain link fence. Uh, there's some shallow dams that the water does go over on the channels and they put chain link fence on there to keep the carp out of the marsh. And we don't have good information on the results of that, but apparently the casual observations or anecdotal observations say that there was a, a good improvement in the submersed vegetation and water clarity uh, in the marsh when they started to do that. Uh, the chain link fence lasted for a couple of years, but it's basically like a big net across the channel. So it filled up pretty quickly with any kind of vegetation uh, that was moving through the channel. So they abandoned the chain link fence and went to kind of a slanted pole type structure. So so um, kind of a jail, jail, uh, what do you call it? Jail bar screen that angled up so that the waves could wash the litter up and the water could still get through and you wouldn't have to be there cleaning it all the time. And they managed to keep that operational through to the 1982. Uh, by 1982, the structures that they had built uh, in the late 60s had pretty much fallen apart. And there was... There was thoughts that maybe carp weren't as critical to the marsh then, uh, you know, as they maybe thought they were. And there were other folks saying that maybe what we needed, it's a nutrient issue. We need to flush the marsh. I'm not, I don't really get a good explanation, but in 1982, everything got pulled out. The carp screens, the dams, everything. And uh, from 1980 through the 80s, the rest of the 80s, the 90s and the 2000s, the marsh just really went downhill. If you look at the duck numbers, uh, the 90s and the 2000s, there was very, very low use of the marsh. And when I started back, as you mentioned, in the late 90s, um, that was when there was renewed interest. Okay, we've been through this for a couple decades now. Things are getting worse. You know, what do we need to do? And again, the idea of, well, you know, carp seemed to be very important. They were very disruptive to the system. That earlier attempt at carp exclusion wasn't perfect, but it did seem to provide some protection for the marsh and the marsh seemed to be doing okay. But once we pulled those structures out in 82, it really went downhill. So in the late 90s, we uh, started looking at the fish community. Okay, 
We didn't have a lot of information on the large fish that use the marsh. We know that we had a species list, but that's all. So we started doing those initial gillnet surveys to see, okay, who's in the marsh? When do they come in? What are they doing in the marsh? And what's the relative abundance? So Dale, you've talked about carp as being one of, being suspected of one of the issues here. And people listening to this are probably familiar that there are a number of carp species that we deal with here in North America that are that it, typically all of them are problematic in some way. Uh, and so what, what species of carp are we dealing with here? This is the common carp by Cyprinus carpio and was introduced over a hundred years ago. So they've been here a long time as opposed to what I think you're going to allude to as the Asian carp. Yeah. That you hear a lot in the news. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's the big head carp, silver carp, um, some of those others that some of the ones that jump out of the water. These common carp are not those that jump out of the water when agitated by a boat or something of that nature, right? No, that's the silver carp that does that. Yeah. So there's big head, silver, uh, grass carp, and black carp. Those fish are the ones that are coming up the Mississippi, are sitting in Chicago, trying to figure out how to get through the Chicago Sanitary Canal into Lake Michigan. And that's where those electric barriers are set up to try and prevent them from getting into the Great Lakes. But common carp, like many of those other species, came here from Asia, right? Actually from Europe. They were, I mean, yeah, they're native to Asia, but uh, Europeans have been raising them for hundreds of years. And when the native fish population started declining, that's when the interest of bringing, um, you know, species that they've been raising in Europe for hundreds of years, well, let's just bring them over here and raise them over here. And if they'd have just left them in ponds as part of aquaculture, okay, that would have been fine. But unfortunately, either intentionally or accidentally, they got released into the wild and basically have pretty much spread right across the continent on their own now. We could say that about a lot of the invasive species that we have today. Man, if we would only if we would have only kept them in the cages, if we would have only not drained that pond. <laughs> that seems to be the way it happens sometimes. So, Dale, I, I think we've already been talking uh, around 30 minutes and we 30, 35 minutes. And so I think what I'm going to do is we're sort of at a good stopping point. We've described some of the decadal changes and what we saw with the habitat. And we're, I think we're about at the point in the story where we're going to start investigating actually what was causing or, or trying to definitively identify uh, a cause of what we were seeing with respect to the decline in the vegetation and the waterfowl community. So this is probably a good place to wrap this up. And then we will we'll start another episode and then have you talk about uh, the rest of this all the way through to the restoration effort. Does that sound, sound okay? That sounds great. Thank you. Okay. Thanks so much for your time, Dale. Oh, you're welcome. Special thanks to our guest on today's show, Dr. Dale Robleski, retired scientist with Ducks Unlimited Canada's Institute for Wetland and Waterfowl Research. We greatly appreciate him sharing his time and telling us about some of the exciting news and stories and history of Delta Marsh in Manitoba. We also thank our producer, Clay Baird, for the great job he does editing editing these podcasts. We call him the digital warrior for all the great work and time that he spends, uh, making us sound way better than what we actually are on these podcasts. And most importantly to you, the listener, we thank you for your time. We thank you for spending it with us. And we thank you for your support, passion, and commitment for wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks.
you and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. 